Amen. So, grab a Bible, turn to Acts. We're going to be, we're going to start out in Acts 11. We're going to jump around a little bit. We're starting a new series, but what I want you to understand is that we're continuing a broader arc uh, because we've been talking pretty much since we arrived in June about what it means to be a Christ follower. It was great. I was talking to Michael. Where is, there he is. Michael, the other, well, it was yesterday, and I was telling him what was coming up, and he said, I brought my Jesus follower shirt. He said, should I wear it? And I'm like, absolutely, because we're talking about following Christ and the fact that following Christ changes everything. So what we've seen in Elijah, somewhat in Jonah, I mean, he did some following. He also did some other stuff. Um, And now we're going to turn to Christ. But what, what I want us to capture is what this idea of following Christ looks like. There's something different about a Christ follower. There's something tangible and there's something recognizable, and you know it when you experience it. It's the attitude of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. It's the mind of Christ from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's the amazing love we're supposed to have for one another in John 13. It's the sense of abiding connection to Christ that we read about in John 15. It's the ingrained sense of godliness found in those who are living out a 1 Timothy 4 life. It's the faith of the saints who have gone before us in Hebrews 11. It's the obedience of Abraham in Genesis 12. It is the love they're showing to the children right now, which in fact are dismissed. I think I forgot to mention that. Upstairs, they've prepared, they're ready, they've taught. It was the love we were shown this morning by Cindy. Where are you, Cindy? So I get to point you out. There she is. Baking us wonderful coffee break snacks. It's the love shown by whoever came before her to set up, and I don't even know who that was because they set up before I got here this morning. The worship team and their preparation. It's something that's utterly recognizable, and it's something that should describe me, and it should describe you, and it should describe every other Christ follower. Look how it was described in the early church. We're going to read in Acts 11. Starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and of Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And on, at the hand, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed Turn to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we unpack what it means to be a Christ follower, and as we we look at the early church and we look at the life of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you'll reveal to us uh, blind spots in our own life where the habits of Christ are not evident. And Lord, there are probably going to be many. Lord, help us to... Listen, help us to read with open eyes and to receive what you say with open minds and open hearts. Lord, help us to be servants who serve with open hands. 
Lord, help us to become Christ followers as we examine the life of Christ. Lord, give us the power to take on the challenges you lay before us in the days and weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. The word Christian is kind of a diminutization. I know that's a weird word. We don't use it a lot in English, but some cultures use diminutization a great deal. Polish was one of them, probably Russian, probably a lot of Slavic languages. I don't know, but for example, in English, we, we do use it a little bit. We might call a dog a doggy or a kitten or a cat. We'd call it a kitty. We'd call a bird a birdie. Sometimes a diminutive form can denote a fondness for someone. Uh, like we call David, we call him Dave. Some people call Barbara Barb, although I don't think she really likes it. Sometimes the diminutive form can denote smallness. For example, we call a small book a booklet. We call a small drop a droplet. We call a small hill a hillet. A hillock, no. <laughs> hillock, hillock. <laughs> we call a small Christ a Christian. That was the picture that was painted in this chapter and the passage that we read that people were acting as if they were Christ, so they were called little Christs, they were called Christians. If we as English speakers were to, to have diminutized the name of Christ, we probably would have called ourselves Christlets. I'm glad somebody else picked Christian because Christlet sounds like a chicklet. Which is weird because a chiclet is a piece of gum and it's not really actually a small chicken. So I don't know. Diminutizations can break down. What I want you to get a hold of here is that the average person in the early days of the New Testament church could look at people. This is average, just street going, vendor in the street, parent, child, person, not a Christ follower, Jew, Gentile. They could look at a person, they could see a group of people and they could recognize something in them that spoke Christ to them to such a degree that they came up with a new name for them, Christian. They lived in such a way that either casually or not so casually, observers would notice something in them that was different. What was it that pointed so obviously in their lives to Christ? I want you to consider with me today the individuals of the early church were recognized precisely because they were living out the habits that Christ had lived out before them. I believe that Christ had ways of thinking, ways of doing things, ways of interacting with people and with the world that were recognizable. And when people saw it, it resonated with them and they recognized something was different. I'm going to call this the Christ way of doing things. And this Christ way of doing things was so different from the way the world thought, different from the way the world acted, and different from the way the world lived, that when people saw it, they named it. Christian, Christianity. About nine months ago, I started a systematic study through the four Gospels, and I went through all four studying to determine what Christ's habits were. It just came to me one day. We were in a Bible study, a small group at our house with another group of people. Well, actually, I think we were at church that time. But anyway, with our small group, we were talking, and we began discussing this idea of Christ's habits, and it kind of came to me at that moment. I wonder what his habits were. Isn't that the kind of thing you think we should already know? If we're supposed to be emulating Christ... If we're supposed to be little Christ's Christians, we should probably know what Christ was in the habit of doing. So I studied and I discovered 35. There's probably more. <laughs> Some of them may be overlapping of each other. 
Don't worry, we're not going to go 35 Sundays on this. <laughs> I pared it down at least initially to 17. Um, so at least probably that many Sundays we're going to take a look at this. But starting today, I want us to take a closer look at these habits. I want us to begin to unpack them one by one. Um, looking at stories of how Christ dealt with people and how he talked and how he led and lived and see if we can unpack these. Each of these habits each week will have a challenge at the end, an action item, an action point, something I'm going to send you out and say, go do this this week. And then the following week, I'm going to say, how'd it go? And hopefully a couple of you say, I tried it, I did it. Here's how it went. So be prepared next Sunday because it's going to be real quiet in here if I ask and nobody did it. All right, you don't know what the challenge is yet, but you might even now go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to receive the challenge when it's given, and I'm going to take it on. I want people to be able to recognize us without having to put a fish on our car. I want people to recognize we're Christians without having to walk up and hit them with a Bible or hand them a track. We want to be recognizable. Listen, without having to even say a single word, people will know by our actions and by our love that we're Christians. So I entitled this series, Jesus Habits, Following Christ Changes Everything, because if we truly follow Christ with all we are, with everything we have, we will be changed, we will be new, and that newness will reflect to the world the Christ that we so love and serve, and the lost and dying world around us will be drawn to Him. So let's get busy discovering today our first habit. I've entitled this habit, Jesus had a habit of hanging out with sinners, I like this one. Jesus did. He had a habit of hanging out with sinners. It drew a lot of fire and it drew a lot of trouble. And I want to ask you a question in starting this to take stock of your friendship pool. Think about the people you rub shoulders with. Do you know any people who aren't in Christ? Do you rub shoulders regularly with people who don't follow the Lord? Who are you intentionally building relationships with? Who are you intentionally having gospel conversations with? It's the kind of thing I just want to start thinking about in your head because there's this thing that happens in the Christian life without careful and intentional practice to do otherwise. Christ followers and churches as a natural inclination begin to surround themselves with other Christians. This is a natural thing. Before we knew Christ, we were surrounded by people who, like us, did not know or follow Christ. After Christ became our Lord and Savior, we began to naturally move away from that life and gravitate towards a new life. We distance ourselves from past lives, past friends, past connections, and past relationships. We do this naturally, and in fact, it's a law of human nature called the law of attraction. And I'm going to read it here, simply stated, the law of attraction says, you attract into your life those things, circumstances, and conditions that correspond with the nature of your dominant habitual thoughts and belief. In other words, like attracts like. If you're a Christian, you attract Christians. You're going to be attracted by Christians. It's interesting that Christ was <laughs> arguably a Christian because the whole thing is named after him, right? Christ as God, as man, living on the earth. Did he attract like? A lot of times he attracted the opposite, didn't he? He attracted, in fact, we're going to see that today. He attracted sinners. He attracted people who didn't know God. He attracted people who, who could see something different in him and were appealed, uh, felt an, an, an appealing nature with him, wanting to know what he was like. So as Christ followers, we tend to gravitate away from those things. And I say, this is natural. And in many parts of our life, 
The law of attraction serves us well, but it does not serve us well in the Christian life. Because what usually happens is quickly after becoming a Christ follower, we move away from the very people Christ wants to change through us in the midst of our transformation. He wants to save us, he wants to change us, and he wants us to live that out among the people we know who are not yet Christ followers. But most often, we gravitate away from them. We lose the opportunity to see relationships around us changed by the gospel because we have distanced ourselves. Now, Jesus had a habit of hanging out with sinners, and he took a lot of grief for it. And if we do it, we'll probably take a lot of grief for it. It caused a great deal of consternation among those who were connected to the religious establishment, but he knew what he was doing, and we should too. So what did this habit look like? We're going to start out in Luke 5. As always, we're going to turn to Scripture to see how Jesus lived and see how his habits work themselves out in his daily life so that we can emulate them as well. So Luke 5, starting in verse 27. It'll be on the screen as well. We've got Bibles in the seats, and I always encourage you, pull out a Bible if you didn't bring your own and read along. It says this. After this, Jesus, the he here, it says, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and in leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them, and the Pharisees and the other scribes grumbled at his disciples, they didn't reproach Jesus, but they grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answered them, saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. And there it is. This is one of Jesus' two thesis statements I want you to get a hold of today. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. That was Jesus saying, here's one of the things in my earthly journey in life with you 12 guys as we go through our daily and weekly and monthly rituals of doing the things we're going to do. This is going to be important for me. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. Jesus was saying, in effect, I didn't come for the religious establishment. I didn't come for those people who already think they have it together. I came for the people who know they're lost. I came for the people who know they're broken. I came for the sinners. I came for the broken and the lost. You remember a statement I made a few weeks ago in the context of our series on Jonah? I said this, we don't see things the way God sees them, therefore we don't want what God wants. This is another example of that. We think we know what we need. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we should do when we're saved and we gravitate away from the world. We think that's the right way to go. I should, as a Christian, move away from the world, be surrounded by Christians and grow in them. You know, in, in part, there's some truth there. As a new believer, you should gravitate towards other believers for fellowship, for accountability, for support, for love, for growth, for discipleship. The false kernel in that is that you move away from the world. That is as false as can be. The ways of the world, yes. The activities of the world, yes. The thinking of the world, yes. The principles of the world, absolutely. But the people, absolutely not. We don't move away from the people. 
We think we see the way God sees, but we don't. Our natural gravitation towards what we think we need as Christ followers in this instance actually serves to make us Pharisees. Do you realize that? As we move away from the world, it becomes an us versus them. And then we begin to look at us. Hey, you know, we all look this way and we live this way and we talk this way, we act this way. We love this way and the world loves that way. And then it becomes a, an us versus them and there's a barrier and there's a wall. And then a couple years go by and we realize we don't know anybody who doesn't know Christ because we don't know anybody out there. We may work with people. We may go to school. We shop. We're surrounded every day by people who don't know Christ. But we don't know them because we moved away from them. And we become Pharisees in our lives. We find ourselves saying things like, those dirty sinners. I got to stay away from those. They're dirty. If I'm, if I'm with them, if I'm around them, if I'm by them, then, then it'll rub off on me. We move to this position of superiority and we, we lord it over. Well, I'm better. Yeah, I know Christ. I've been saved. I've been washed and redeemed and sanctified. And now I know better and I'm better than them. I hope that as we continue to look into this particular point and on through the series, we'll see the folly of the way we've been thinking. Because Christ didn't save us in order to make us into Pharisees. That is not his purpose. That is not his goal. He didn't save you in order to make you into a judgmental Pharisee. He didn't save us so that we could rail against the speck in someone else's eye while ignoring the log in our own eye. He didn't save us so we could hide in comfortable buildings and sing songs. That's not why he saved you. He saved you and he saved me in order to change us, in order that we might become examples to the world of what Christ is capable of in the lives of people who don't yet know them. Do you remember the day you didn't know Christ? Do you remember back to who you were and what you were like? It's important for you to remember that. It's important for you to remember what you were like before Christ transformed you. Because that takes you out of here and into a place where you can understand and empathize and relate to people who don't yet know Christ. We become an example to the world of how Christ can take the worst of sinners and make something useful and glorious out of them. Now, when Jesus was hanging out with sinners, what did he do? We're going to look at a couple more stories. As we, as we look at these, we're going to see three things going on. He would ask questions, and he would answer questions. You saw that over and over again in Scripture. People would ask Jesus questions. For example, a few minutes ago, they, they don't, don't you know uh, these people are sinners? You remember in the story that, that Daniel read, they were kind of grumbling under their breath, kind of asking a question, saying, you know, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who that woman is, and he would know what she's like. He also told stories to reveal spiritual truth, and he encouraged people to question their status quo beliefs about who, get, who God is and what he wants. In the story we just read and in many other places, we see Jesus was in just the right place at just the right time to answer questions. Why don't your disciples fast? Why don't they wash their hands? He was asked at one point, are you the one or should we expect someone else? 
the disciples asked him, where can we get enough bread to feed this crowd? Again, they said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, is it right to pay taxes? His parents, son, why have you treated us like this when he was at the temple? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? And how can a man be born when he's old? You see, if Jesus didn't spend time answering the questions the world was asking, he wouldn't have been, if he wasn't there, he couldn't have answered them. If he wasn't where he needed to be in the world, around the people who had the questions, he would have been unable to to answer them. He wouldn't have even been available. You and I have to learn to live where the questions are being asked. And in case you didn't notice, they're not necessarily being asked in here. There might be one or two people who will come to a church and seek out Christ through entering into a building. This is a scary place. It's a scary building. No one knows what goes on in here. If you're not a believer, you're not a Christ follower, and you see a church, you're like, well, that's a weird place. The, the windows are fogged over, so people can't see in. Why do we do that? I, I think we do that so we're not distracted to look outside. You know what? I love to look outside. The, the, and not to say we should change it, although it might be nice. The church in Montana had windows you could see through. I like that. You could look outside and see the snow falling most of the time. <laughs> I just have to mention, yesterday, sent, uh, Abby sent me a picture, our oldest. She's going to Montana State University. She marches in the band. Yesterday was homecoming. She sent me a picture. They were getting ready to march in the parade, snow on the ground. And then I got online, and I Googled the, the football stadium, and they showed the football stadium being shoveled for the game. She's like, we marched all day in the, you know, in the parade. We marched all afternoon. We marched out on the field. We marched after. They won. They won by one point. It was so close kept them from scoring a two-point conversion at the end to win by one point. It was amazing. I wrote her later, and I said, was it really cold? And she said, you have no idea <laughs> how cold it was marching in the snow. And she plays, plays a brass instrument, so she's blowing on an ice cold. Yeah. We hide in this building. We may not think we're hiding, and it may not seem to us like we're hiding, but to the world it looks like we're hiding. Because they come into a place they can't see into. They don't know what we do here. They're not going to walk in here to ask their questions. Like I said, maybe one or two people will. But by and large, people are asking their questions out there. Who's answering their questions out there? Jehovah's Witnesses are out there answering their questions, right? We see them. They're out of the doors all the time. Who else is out there? The Mormons are out there answering their questions. I'm not saying we should necessarily go do what they're doing. But as an example, there are other people out there answering the questions. There are some Christians out there answering questions, but by and large, people out there are getting their questions answered by the news media, by entertainers, right? By popular people in the news, in, in movies, whatever. They're going to school where their questions are being answered by teachers who aren't followers of Christ. They're going to college where they're being steered by Liberal teaching by professors who don't know Christ. They're getting their questions answered in other places, and we are not there. We have to learn to to be where the questions are being asked because Jesus was with sinners, and that's where the questions were. If you don't know anybody who doesn't know Christ and you're not spending time with somebody who doesn't know Christ, you're not able to answer the questions they're asking because you don't even know what they are. Take a look at another example. 
It's out of, uh, out of Luke 15. And I'm just going to tell you the story here because it says in the first couple of verses there were tax collectors and there were sinners drawing near to Christ and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you three stories. And the first story goes like this. He said there was a, there was a, a, a shepherd and he was out with his sheep and he had 100 sheep and one wandered off and he went to go find it. He left the 99 in the open field. He went to find the one that was lost. And when he found it, he put it on his shoulders. He carried it back and he proclaimed to his friends. He gathered them together and said, hey, I got good news. I found the lost sheep. And it said there was great celebrating in heaven over the one that's lost that is found. And then he told another story. He said there was a woman. She had 10 coins and she was just, I don't know, being careless in her house. Sometimes things are lost through carelessness. She looked in her purse, and all of a sudden there were nine. So she's like, I've lost one. So it says scripture, uh, the, the story Jesus said, that, that she swept the house, and she searched. She lit a lamp, and she looked until she found it. And when she found it, she must have been really excited about that coin because she called her neighbors and her friends together again, and she said, look, I found my lost coin. And it said, the angels in heaven celebrate when that which is lost is found. And then he told a story about a man with two sons. Well, we all know this story, right? Man had two sons. Maybe not all of us do. One son came to him, the younger son, and he said, you know what? I'm ready to go. I want my inheritance. I want my money. I'm tired of living under your roof, and I'm going to go. And the father said, okay, here's your inheritance. You can leave. And it said not long after receiving his inheritance, he went. He left. And he traveled to a land that was far off. And it said when he got there, he squandered it. He wasted it. He used it all on, I love the, the version of scripture that calls it riotous living. Is that the King James that says that? I love that one. <laughs> he squandered it all in riotous living. Sounds like he had a good time. But he blew it all, and it was gone. And then it said, right about the time he ran out of money, isn't this how life goes? A famine arose in the land. And he began to be hungry, and he was in need, and he didn't have anything to eat. So he put himself out there for a job, and he found a local in that, in that country that wasn't his country that was raising pigs and the guy gave him a job feeding the animals, and he took the food out to feed the animals, and he looked at the pods, and he said, man, I'm hungry. I could, I could eat the pods, but no one's giving me any food. And right at that moment, he had this idea. He's like, you know what? I remember at my house, there were servants who were well-fed. They were always taken care of, and they always had bread. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back, and I'm going I'm to beg my father to take me back as a servant. It's like, I know I'm not worthy of being a son now because of what I've done, but I'm going to go back and ask to be received as a servant. So he traveled back to the house, and as he was approaching, the father who had apparently been waiting for him, probably watching and looking each day to see if the son returned, saw his son far off, and when he saw his son coming, he ran to him, and he received him, and the, and the son was so glad to see his father, but he still, you know, he had this memorized. You ever done this? You gotten in trouble with dad or mom? And you've memorized the story that you're going to tell him to get out of trouble. So he still goes through this story. He says, Dad, I'm back. I'm sorry. I wasted the money. I know I'm not worthy to be your son. Could I just be a servant? And in the course of saying this, the dad just grabbed him and hugged him. Just right in the middle of it. Probably like just interrupted this, this, this process of, of apology and, and hugged him and welcomed him back and said he, he called a servant over and he said, go get a robe, go get a ring, dress him up. This son of mine's returned. And in fact, go get um, some meat. We're going to have a party. Go kill the fatted calf, the, that, that calf that we've been fattening up for the big party next month. We're going to eat it today. 
So they got it prepared, and they clothed the son. In the meantime, the older son was in the field, and, and he heard the noise. He heard the party, and he walked in, and he asked his servant, hey, come over, what's going on? And he said, your, your brother's returned. And your dad was so happy. He threw a party for him. He's so happy he returned, and the son was, like, angry about it. And he went and he talked to the father, and he's like, well, why did you do this? And he's like, well, your, your brother's returned. Aren't you happy? And he's like, no, I'm really ticked off. You never gave me anything. You didn't even give me a goat. I know. You didn't even give me a goat to have a party with my friends. But this guy who wasted everything, this son of yours, he said. What an insult to the father. This son of yours. He doesn't even call him my brother. This son of yours squandered everything with prostitutes and riotous living, and you just welcome him back. And he's like, son, it's all been yours all along, and it always will be. Everything is mine is yours. But your brother's returned. And so let's celebrate him. Why did Jesus tell those three stories? Why did he talk about these stories of things that were lost? What do you guys think? Consider the audience. Who is the audience? Sinners, tax collectors. Who else was there, though? Pharisees and scribes, right? So he's, he's considered his audience, and he tells the story about things that are lost because he's trying to help them to see things that are lost can be found and that God values those things. Why was Jesus with this unlikely group of people? Why was he with them? Do what? They were lost. That's it. That's the answer. Rick hit it on the head. If Christ hadn't been with the lost, he couldn't have told the stories, right? The grumbling wouldn't have happened. The opportunity to tell the story wouldn't have arisen. We're going to look at Luke 19 in a second because I want to answer the question, how this habit of hanging out with sinners informs Christ's daily life and routine so we can see how it might inform our life. And routine. The story is an example of how Jesus arranged his life around the prospect of unexpected things. How ready are you for unexpected moments, for divine opportunities, for, for God moments in your daily schedule? Or are you so focused on the goal that you don't see what's going on around you? When it happens in chapter 19 of Luke, I'm going to read 1 through 10, it says, Jesus, again, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was, seeing, or he was seeking to see Jesus, uh, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he knew he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he saw him, and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, he came down. And he received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How terrible. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone else of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. That's the second of the two theses one I wanted you to pick up on today. Jesus came to seek and save 
the lost. What if he had been too busy for the interruption of Zacchaeus? It says at the beginning of that passage, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was not his destination. But where did he end up staying? In Jericho. Where did he end up having a meal? In Jericho. In what company? Company of sinners. It was not his plan or his destination, but when he passed Zacchaeus, he didn't say, see ya. Catch you on the flip side, Zach. I got no time for you today. Maybe when we come back next month on the return tour, we'll be back. He didn't say that. He called him down. He had a meal with him. He saw him. He entered his household. And you know what happened? Not just Zacchaeus came to faith in Christ, but it says his whole household came to faith in Christ. Do you see stuff like that happening in your life right now? You're meeting people, you're talking with people who are, who are not Christ followers, you're spending time with them, and you're seeing them and their whole household come to faith in Christ. Anybody seeing that? Why not? Why can we not see that happening? Is that just something that happened in the New Testament? Is that just something that happened only when Jesus spoke? Or is it something that could be normative? In fact, I think it is. You saw it happen in Acts among the disciples, among the apostles. You saw it happen uh, in the stories of Peter and in the stories of Paul. You can see them enter households. We have experienced it from afar. <laughs> Eight years in Poland, we built a team. We did a lot of work with Polish Baptists. We got systems and processes in place to, to, to meet Polish people, to get Polish families and American families together and to share the gospel with them. And the team that we left behind when we came back to the States seven years ago continued in that process. They have seen this happen. They have seen whole families come to faith in Christ. They've seen generations of families, grandma, mom and dad, adult kids, and their grandkids. They've seen this happen several times where multi-generational family groups come to faith in Christ. Why do we only hear about that happening over there? You hear missionaries talk, and you, you, you can hear stories like this happening other places in the world. Why don't we hear about it happening in Elmwood Park? Why don't we hear about it happening in the United States? Can it happen? Will it happen? Could it happen? You think so? I think it can. He wasn't too busy. How many times are you too busy? How many times are you too busy to have a talk? How many times are you too busy to sit down for a meal? When is the last time you had a meal with somebody you didn't know? or just met? Would anyone look at your life from afar and say, would they even ask the question, what is that person doing hanging out with those sinners? <laughs> would anybody even notice? This passage contains that second thesis. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now I want to answer this last question here. How can you and I begin to see the Jesus habit forming in our own life? And that's a question we're going to ask every week. Because it doesn't make sense to just talk about it if we don't understand how to get it. When you learn a habit, we call it habit formation. I am not going to launch into a talk on psychology right now. However, I read that it takes more than we think, 18 to 254 days, it says to form a new habit. That's longer than I thought. That's not what people usually say. People usually say, well, like 30 days, right? It can take a long time to form a new habit. 
Habit formation can be difficult. It can be offset by other things that happen. But Jesus knew that it would take time. And so he set aside time. He had time in his schedule. He had margin in his life, wiggle room for when the appointment came, when he met Zacchaeus, when the woman at the well turned up. You remember that one? They were traveling. They were, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but they were traveling. They stopped in a Samaritan town. They went to the well. The disciples are like, man, Jesus is probably hungry. We got to go get him some food. They left him at the well, and Jesus is like, I have food you know anything about. My food's to do the will of God, and he saw a woman who didn't know him and didn't know who God was, and he spent time with her. And the disciples came back, and they're like, aren't you hungry, Jesus? And he's like, I have food you don't know anything about. And they're like, Is he, who gave him food? <laughs> he wasn't talking about food, was he? What was his food? To do the will of God. To obey, to talk, to speak, to, to, to be with sinners. Thesis 1 I have come not for the righteous, but for the sinners, to call them to repentance. See, thesis two, I have come to seek and save the lost. That's what he was about. It wasn't about food. It wasn't about getting a drink at the well. He came to see people saved. He came that they may become new as we are now. New Christ followers. He came because the beggar needed bread. Do you remember that that is who we were once? And now the bread that we have, we need to give away? Action plan. Here's your action plan for habit one. Are you ready? This is what I need you to do this week. Meet somebody who's not a Christ follower. Ooh. Some of you are like, that's easy. Some of you are like, uh. Go meet somebody you don't know. How do you know they're not a Christ follower? You don't, but go meet them and find out. You got to meet them first, right? You got to talk to them. You got to have a conversation with them. Go meet somebody. If it turns out they turn out to be a Christ follower, great. That happens sometimes. I've, I met some people recently and I thought this is going to be a great conversation turn out to be a Christ follower. That's awesome. Then you, you shift to a different conversation. You know, hey, where do you go to church? A lot of Christ followers don't go to church. They say, I'm a Christ follower, but it turns out they're not really doing anything. They're just kind of hanging out. Don't just abandon the person who says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. But meet somebody this week. Take them to coffee. Take them to ice cream. Take them to a meal. You buy. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Now you've gone and done it. Everybody's like, I got a whole tin back from my, from my dives and offerings today so I can afford to take somebody out to lunch this week. Don't do that. Take them and go have a meal. Go have coffee. If you have a friend who's an unbeliever, call them this week and get together. It's going to take time. I know this might sound ridiculous. Some of you are thinking internally, this is nuts. <laughs> to form a habit, you're going to have to be busy about repeating that habit. That's why I'm giving you the challenge. So often we go to church, we hear a message, we think, oh, that's nice, we go away, there's no challenge, there's no what do I do next. There's going to be a lot of what do I do next coming up. So right now, before the church, before the Father, make a commitment to execute this plan. I'm not going to have you stand up. Maybe I should. Everybody's going to do it, stand up. But, but, but maybe so. Next week when we start the message, I'm going to ask for people to share. Not everybody has to. 
we probably don't have time for everybody because we've also got baptisms. It's going to be a busy, it's going to be a busy next couple of weeks. But next week, we'd love to hear a story. Maybe somebody will come next week and instead of a story, they'll say, hey, I brought my friend with me today. And we'll all go, that's awesome. I brought my neighbor. I brought my coworker. I brought this guy I didn't know. <laughs> Met him at Panera and here he is. Ask and answer questions. Tell stories that reveal spiritual truth and encourage them to question their status quo beliefs about God. Those are the things Christ did when he was with people who didn't know Christ, the people who were not Christ's followers. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have uh, everything figured out. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You just have to have time. Just take some time. Call somebody, meet somebody, find somebody today. Take them to lunch, take them to coffee, walk out of here, walk over to the park, say, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? <laughs> They'll probably be like, you're crazy. You never know what might happen. I'm serious, be, be open for God's timing. In whatever you do, whatever your daily routines are, find time for margin to be ready for what happens around you. If you commit before the Lord today to do this and you wait and you look this week with open eyes, I guarantee you he will put the right person in your path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the, the man, the challenge there, Lord. It's so deep. It's so simple, deceivingly simple. Meet somebody and talk to them. Spend time with people who don't know you. Lord, I pray that you will continue to challenge us, that that challenge will resonate in us the rest of the day and the rest of this week, and we won't go out of here and forget and go to the car and drive off and go to lunch and just like, hey, it's forgotten, it's done. I, I don't remember what happened at church anymore, but I go out of here today, and I'm driven, I'm focused, and I'm, I'm watching, and I have my Jesus eyes on, and I'm living in a Christ-like way, and I'm looking for the person that you're going to put in my path that I'm supposed to talk to. You know, Jesus didn't spend, we, we know God, he didn't spend a lot of time just like pounding people with stuff. He talked to them. He asked them questions. He learned about who they were. He challenged their beliefs and at just the right time, he, he called people to commitment. Lord, help us as we, as we reread today these scriptures, as we restudy this this week, and as we continue to move through these habits, Lord, help us to get them, help us to grasp them. Help us to internalize them and to begin to live them. Lord, that we might, we might typify what your scripture calls a Christ follower, that we might be the example, that we might be the kind of people the world looks at and says, ah, they're Christians. Lord, I pray that you'll bring that out of me, that you'll bring that out of each of us. Lord, we thank you for this challenge. Lord, give us the energy. Give us the boldness to live it out. And Lord, if we don't yet know you, if we haven't come to that place where we're there, Lord, I pray that as we even talk now and as we, as we sing a song, as we pray, Lord, to do business in our hearts and in our lives as you're calling us to, to follow you, that we might turn from our past and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for 
saving me when I was 16. Lord, thank you for our salvation stories collectively. Lord, we thank you for those who are going to be baptized next week and the week after and the week after. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this church. But Lord, we pray for this community. All those things are great, but Lord, we pray for Elmwood Park. You've positioned this church in Elmwood Park to be salt and light. Lord, we pray for those who are separated from you. They're all around us. Lord, I pray that you'll draw us this week into God-appointed conversations and moments with people who are seeking you. And for people who aren't seeking you. Lord, I pray that you'll find us obedient, that we'll take time to spend with people because you love people and you love them enough to send your son to die for them. So Lord, I pray that as we commit before you, um, that journey that you have laid out before us will become apparent to us and we'll see through your eyes and we'll feel through your heart and we'll understand and look at things uh, just a little bit more like the way you do. Lord, we thank you. We don't know why sometimes you choose us to do this, but this is the calling that you've given the believer. Emulate Christ. So Lord, make each of us into Christ day by day and moment by moment that we might reflect him to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.